Well, good morning again. I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, time with family, time even without family, to focus on being thankful for what God has given to us. And stemming out of that thankfulness comes this morning's sermon. If ever I tell you that I would like to cover three distinct characteristics of God in one sermon, you have permission to punch me in the nose. It was not, I mean, it was easy to have enough content. It was hard to figure out what to say. The basic idea is this. We already intrinsically understand the connection of these three attributes in life. But when it comes to God, we have a tendency to disjoin them, separate them, only think about them as individual pieces, not recognizing how they have to work together. So God is just as the title, but along with God's justice comes his righteousness, and along with his righteousness comes his wrath. Like I said, we, we get this. Uh, just think about a judge. There may be a judge in here. I can't say his name. His name's Andy. Um, but, but there may be a judge in here, and, and we understand something. If somebody comes to his courtroom and is then convicted guilty of things that they did, but they're also a kind person who gives money to the Salvation Army bell ringers outside the grocery stores, does their kindness remove their guilt uh, better yet, would a just judge, would a right judge not hold them culpable for the things that they've done wrong because they also did nice things, good things? No, we would intrinsically, inherently, deep inside who we are, understand that if it is a just judge, they have to punish, give consequences for the wrong things done even if other nice things are done in addition or outside of that. But when it comes to God, we forget that those are tied together in the exact same way. So we hear about his wrath. He says he has wrath, and, and, and we forget that his wrath is born out of his justice. It's born out of his righteousness. And because he's just, because he's righteous, there is no option other than punishment consequences for sin. The hard part is we hear that and we think, boy, that sure is mean. It's not mean. It's right. There's a difficulty whenever we talk about the attributes of God, and we've, we've talked about this difficulty before, and that difficulty is that we have to make sure we understand what these things are. You ever wondered what the difference between justice and righteousness is? Interestingly, the Greek word is the same, dikaiosune. It means justice or it means righteousness. 
So what's the difference? We feel like there's a difference. We feel like there's, there's something that distinguishes one from the other because sometimes it says that a thing is right or a thing is just. So there must be something different in them, but yet they, they're connected somehow. How are they connected? The simple way to see it is this. We're going to read Romans, uh, a bit out of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance, he has passed over the former sins through the law that he had established, those sins being then postponed in punishment until Christ took punishment for them. That's what he's meaning there. He has passed over our former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So there's a shift from the beginning, the righteousness of God, shifting then to the justice of God, both connected to the same thing, that is the death and propitiation of Jesus Christ. So what is the difference between righteousness and justice? The difference is that righteousness is a state of being. We are made right before Christ. Our hearts, our insides, our, our, our spirit is right before him because he died on the cross making us right before God. Whereas justice is the right expression of that righteousness. So justice is an action done. Righteousness is a being held. That's why Micah chapter six, verse eight says, do justice. Love mercy and walk humbly with your God or love kindness and walk humbly with your God because justice, that dikaiosune, is an expression of our righteousness had in Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4 we're going to be looking at a lot of verses. If you want to follow along with your phone, you can use scan the QR code on the sermon notes page that will take you to a list of all the passages that we'll be using. You don't have to, I'm just saying that you can. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. So we have this. God who is righteous and he bestows that righteousness on us. That's the Romans passage. But inherently he is righteous, but also he is just. So not only does God hold the state of being right perfectly without compromise, he also expresses that perfectly and without compromise. As God expresses that justice to people, what does it mean? It means that he takes us who are right and he rewards us. Now, the only way we can be right is to have put our faith in Jesus. 
If we try to be right outside of Jesus, we can't ever be right because all of the sins that we possess are still held against us. Back to that just judge mentality. If you kill somebody, but then you help an old lady across the road and you say, but I, but I helped an old lady across the road, that doesn't negate the murderer. So until we put our faith in Jesus, and it's not that our sins are ignored, our sins are already paid for. Once they are paid for, then God gives us according to what we do. He rewards us for right actions. But he also punishes the world for wrong actions. That's what a just judge does. So God holds the state of being righteous, expresses the state of being just. Now, what do we do with that? What do we do? How do we act out? How do we express? How do we show justice? We hear about it all over the internet, all over social media about social justice. But what social justice usually seems to mean, I cannot guarantee that it's intended. I'm not the people putting stuff out. I can't guarantee that they, that they would express this if in conversation with me. What they, what they seem to mean, though, is social equality. That's what social justice is. Justice is not equality. Justice is the right reward or consequence for an action done. So when we come to the idea of social justice, socially what is just is that people who do right should be treated with reward. Not greater value. We're not talking about value here. We're talking about justice. People who do wrong should be treated like they did wrong. Again, not diminishing the value of the person because I've done more wrong than I care to admit. And my value in Christ has not diminished because he still values me. I'm not always sure why, but he does. And so now we come, we, we hold to this idea of God's justice, not equality for all people and all things, value for people and all things, but justice, giving right to people who have done right, giving consequences to people who have done wrong. That is justice. Amos chapter 5. It's a terribly difficult passage. And difficult not because it's hard to understand, difficult because it's easy to understand. Really hard to apply to life. We're going to read this passage and then go through it and break it down just a little bit. It's verses, Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 24. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or, or went into a house and leaned his hand against a wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
and the peace offerings of your fattened animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melodies of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let's, let's go back to verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. That seems like an odd thing to say. Especially to the Israelites who have been waiting for the day of the Lord. Maybe we need to make sure that we understand what the day of the Lord is. What is this day of the Lord? Is that the Lord's day as we refer to Sundays? Or, or, or since it's Old Testament, is this, is this the Sabbath day, Yahweh's day? Is that what it's about? No. This is about the arrival of your strong friend to rescue you from brokenness. This is the arrival of Yahweh to the battle that you're in. When he shows up in all of his presence to take care of all of your enemies. That's how the Israelites would have seen the day of the Lord. That's why they were looking forward to the day of the Lord because Yahweh was going to come and destroy all of the Canaanites. Destroy everyone who stood in opposition to Israel. But, but God through Amos writes, why would you have the day of the Lord? It's not, it is darkness and not light. Down again. Uh, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? That's book ends verses 18 to 20. Why would they not get something good out of the day of the Lord? Why would they not get something good out of the arrival of Yahweh into, in his whole presence to deal with the issues of society? I would love it if God showed up and just took care of everything. Or maybe I wouldn't. Because see, God comes and indiscriminately deals with evil. And what that means is this. He doesn't stand in my camp looking out at the other camp and saying, oh, you done messed up. He stands above the earth and he looks at everything and he says, I will judge sin as sin. The Israelites wouldn't be excluded in this case. So they want Yahweh to show up to do their stuff for them, to take care of all the evil and brokenness. And then God says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Me showing up is not good for you. In his patience, that's why he's waited. Remember? Not wishing that any would perish, but all come to repentance. That's, God is patient with us because when he shows up, there's no more chances to turn away from the evil that we've done. So God says, me showing up is bad for you, first of all. Second of all, I, and then God gets very, very particular. God hates. God despises. God will not look at things or rejects them. He takes no delight in them. What are the things that God says that about? Now, I ask that question not so that you would raise your hand and list out the things he says. Rather, 
What types of things are these? If we were to go back and read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you know what we'd find? Commands to do all of the things that God just is about to say he hates. That's where it's okay. Why? He hates and despises their feasts that they were commanded to do. Their solemn assemblies they were commanded to have. Uh, the peace offerings of the fattened animals. He won't even look at them. They were commanded to do them. Why? Why does God despise them doing all of the things that they were told to do? Because God is not interested in box checking. The idea of church leadership follows a similar idea. What are the qualifications for church leadership? To be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. You can know a person doesn't look that way if you go through 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and they can't match up to the things that are there. But just because somebody says they can do all those things, they can check all those boxes, doesn't mean that they are actually ready for church leadership or should be in that because you're looking for someone whose heart is right. So the Israelites here are checking all the right boxes. They're doing all the right things. They show up on Sunday and they sing a hymn and a modern song. They sing it loud. They sing it quiet. They gather for meals. They take communion. They check all the boxes a church is supposed to check and God hates what they do. Because when they walk out those doors, they don't act like that at all. How do we know that? Because he says, take all of this away from me. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Take away from me the melody of your harps. But in contrast, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, which indicates that they were not acting just. They were not acting right or they were not being right outside of their solemn assemblies. When you're sitting quietly in a chair, listening to me drone on, I mean, speak, it is easy to make it look like you love Jesus a lot. Why? Because all you have to do is not interrupt and not fall asleep. That's all you have to do. Then it looks like you are in this, this growing spiritual godly state, even if you're not. So let justice flow down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let it run forth from us in such a way that it couldn't be stopped. Because we care about treating people right, not equal, right. We care about recognizing what God has done for us that we then express to other people and treat them the way that they should be treated but we're not even done yet. As we look at the idea of God's, well, before we even look at the idea of God's justice and how he calls us to do that, what he wants from us along with that justice, so in that righteousness, what he wants so that we don't have solemn assemblies, 
so that we don't have gatherings, feasts, we don't have sacrifices and offerings and all of that, but so that we don't have all of those things, doing the right stuff and having God displeased with us, we need to follow Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering, right? That's the idea out of Amos 5. I could give my sacrifices, I could give my offerings, but you don't want that. But he said he wanted it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. What does God want? For us to show the justice, to show the righteousness that he demands of us, he wants contrition and humility. A life that says, this isn't about me. This is recognizing my own brokenness before God and being dependent on his mercy, on his grace. Back to the Romans 3 passage. Not only are we all sinners in need of a savior, but God offers what we need through the propitiation of his son. His son died and was the, the appeasement of God's wrath because he took it already. And if God poured out his wrath on Jesus, a just judge can't make someone else pay for what is already paid for. That'd be, like, that'd be like going to the gas station and paying for your gas, which is painful enough the way it is, only to find out after you paid for it that somebody else already paid for it. I don't think any of us would be real pleased to find out that the $80 of gas that we just put in our vehicle, somebody paid for before we got there, and then they took my money as well. What God wants he wants that contrition and brokenness that then leads to sacrifice that stems from what we believe. He wants all of our assemblies and our music to stem from that, not be something that we do irrespective of the rest of our lives. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to buzz through a few things here really quick. So if you're looking online and looking at the verses, you're going to see that we, we jump through a whole bunch of verses here really, really quickly as we talk about this, this idea of justice. Proverbs 11.1, 1, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. What does that mean? A false balance. When you had to go out and buy something in a market, where there are no computers, no scanners to tell you how much the barcode on the thing you're buying says that it should be worth. How do you know? How do you know if you've given enough silver, enough gold, enough copper, enough whatever for this thing? You'd put it on a scale. How would you know if instead of 55 grams that they put on their side, they actually put 57 grams to make you pay a little bit more. You likely wouldn't know. They weren't stupid. So it's not like they'd put one out and say, this one's 50, here's another one for five, here's another one for 56, and here's another one for 57, but let's just pretend it's 55. They would have two sets of weights, one that weighed a little bit more, one that weighed a little bit less. And they would use the more or less weights to make it so that you had to pay more or they had to pay less, depending on what was going on, so that they could rip you off. 
We don't experience that in our society in the sense that you go to a store and they pull out a scale to find out how much you should pay. But imagine, I remember going to, going to Italy once and going to Mexico once and both times we were told, do not pay with cash. Pay with your credit card because you're guaranteed to get the actual exchange rate. Because if you pay somebody with cash and you don't actually know what the exchange rate is, they can give you back whatever they give you and there's not a whole lot you could do. Especially when you don't speak their language. You're stuck. You're dependent on their being just and right in order for you to not get ripped off. That's the most similar thing that I can think of that we have to this. And God says, use that right. So let's read a few more of these really quickly. Proverbs 20, 20. 2010, sorry, Proverbs 2010, unequal weights and unequal measures are both like an abomination to the Lord. Leviticus 19.35, you shall do no wrong in judgment in measures or length or weight or quantity. Don't lie. Deuteronomy 25.13-16, you shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small, you shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. The short is this. Trying to take advantage of people especially when they can do nothing about it, is wrong. Absolutely, completely wrong. Why? Because God doesn't do that. Go forward to Matthew 21, and it's a story about Jesus driving out the moneylenders from the temple. And he says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of robbers. How? How? by taking advantage of people. By saying, oh, this animal that you want to sacrifice isn't good enough. Let me sell you one that is good enough. It's been pre-approved and it'll cost you eight times as much as expected. And then they would take yours and they would stick it in the pre-approved pen to sell to somebody else. That was the system. That was the game. Everybody knew the game, but you couldn't do anything about it. And so Jesus drove them out of the temple in anger. Why? Because they were unjust to people who could not do anything about it. James chapter 5, verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You owed people money. The, 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 the landlord owed people money for what they did and refused to pay them. And because God is just, that is wrong. Now, we were going to look at a passage out of Nahum. We're going to summarize it. Basically, it says this, that God will not then, because of his righteousness, because of his justice, will not hold the guilty unculpable. They will be held guilty. They will be punished for what they've done. 
Why? Because now that the righteousness of God meets with the justice of God, out comes the wrath of God toward sin. It is toward sin. And if sin is in us, then we take the brunt of that. Not because God desires to be wrathful toward people, but wrathful toward sin. He created us to be perfect, to be without needing his wrath, and then we sinned, and we deserve his wrath. And so what do we do? Knowing that to be the case, knowing that God's righteousness and his justice work together to bring forth his wrath, what do we do? We have a tendency to cower in fear because God's wrath cannot be either held back by us or handled by us. And so what do we do? We remember Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 35. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more than of God's wrath, that's what his wrath is, is condemnation for sin. There's no more of his wrath on us or for us or that we have to be worried about because of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else. No one, no thing, nowhere else that we can find solace for the condemnation that we deserve other than in Jesus Christ giving that to us. God's wrath. God's wrath coming from his justice and coming from his righteousness gives us peace. And I know that sounds weird, but it gives us peace. Because we no longer have to be the dealers of wrath. We can treat people justly. We can treat people right. We can treat people the way they should be treated. But we don't have to be the ones who carry the weight of how am I going to dole out the wrath that somebody deserves for their sin. It's not our role. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21 says this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that could be its whole own sermon. But what we need to grab from that is God will deal vengeance. Why? Because only he can do it perfectly, rightly, and to its fullest extent. Vengeance is God's. He will repay. There's a temporal component to our to our uh, seeing God's wrath. And that is he repays people sometimes right here on earth for what they've done, sometimes not. If you see God repay someone for what they've done evil to you, don't gloat. Don't be happy. 
but just trust that God did it right. If you don't, don't be angry. Don't try to get it yourself. Trust that God will do it right. Because in the end, Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15 says this. It says, after, after all the, the thousand years has come and gone, after Satan has been re-released into society, then death and Hades, after Jesus destroys them, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Remember how God's justice demands punishment for sin? And if you don't trust him for Jesus taking it, you will take it. Then moving to Revelation 21 verse 4, Then he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for those former things have passed away. God's wrath will eventually work itself out and give people what they deserve. We don't have to do that. We love our enemy. We pray for those who persecute us. Why? Because God will deal with them in a way that is perfectly, holy, righteous, in a way that is perfectly, holy, just, in a way that none of us could actually do. So because... God is just. Holy, perfectly, right responding to things. Because that is born out of his righteousness, so comes his wrath given to all people who don't trust him. But there's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. We can trust him. Why? Because he is righteous. Because he is just. Because he holds wrath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these attributes of who you are that seem, that seem hard to understand, hard to get our minds around, hard to engage with. We pray, Father, that you would be honored and glorified in us as we, as we interact with with this element of who you are, that you would cause us as your people to rightly understand your righteousness then bestowed on us, to rightly understand your justice given out as you see fit, to rightly understand your wrath as you deal with sin. Cause these truths to deepen our faith, to deepen our trust, to deepen our following of your son. For it's in his holy name we pray. Amen.